God. We've been in a sermon series the last few weeks called Solid, a sure word for shaking faith, where we've been looking at some tough challenges to Christianity, some questions that are often posed against our faith. And today's question is, is Jesus Christ the only way to God? Is Jesus Christ the only way to God? Is Christianity the only true religion? Let's play a guessing game here. This week I read a survey, not a family view survey, but a real one. And the survey was asking people um, what they thought about this question. The the question was, um, can many religions lead to God? Can can a different religion lead to God? That was a survey question. Uh, Can many different ones find God? How many evangelical survey do you think answered yes to that question can many roads lead to God? How many would you get? 20, 20%, 30%. 51% of evangelicals surveyed believe that there are many paths to God. And that's why this question is so serious. Evangelicals are the ones you would think, they're the ones always in the media but portrayed as the one-way people. Half of them don't even believe that. So that's why we want to take a look at this today. It is tricky. I read another article this week. And uh, what the article did was basically say, if you don't believe in what we would call religious pluralism, which means many roads lead to God, if you don't believe that, you're a bigot. So in our current culture today, and this was a, uh, one of the leading figures, of, a well-known guy said, you, you know, you're a bigot if you don't believe in this. So it's tricky because you can't even bring this up in some Quarters without being branded, labeled a bigot. There are other tar- hard questions that come up when you start talking about this. Things like, how can you be so intolerant of others to think Christianity is better? Or, Isn't that just a bit arrogant to say that you have found the only way, right? You may have heard that one. A favorite of mine. Why are you being so narrow-minded here? Why are you being so narrow-minded? Elvis Presley once entitled album, this great album title. The album title was 50 Million Elvis Fans Can't Be Wrong. 50 Million Elvis Fans Can't Be Wrong. And that's the idea. He was arguing that the populace, if the masses think something, it can't be wrong. If there are 2 billion Muslims on the planet who are sincerely following Allah, surely they can't be wrong. That's the argument that you often hear when you address this question. So it's a tough one. And as we talk through it, I do want to just give you some advice. If these questions come up in your life about your faith, and the counsel I would give you is, don't fall into the temptation of abandoning what the Bible says. Sometimes in these conversations, there's a temptation just for the sake of argument. Let's say the Bible is out of the question. Let's just have some rational argument about this. And everything, everything you're saying is based on the Bible. What about something else? Because those will be your challenges as you talk to people about this. Instead of that, I would encourage you not to abandon the Scriptures, but to dive into them and rest on them and cling to them as true and worthy and valid. And that's going to be your hope when you're answering this question. Is Jesus the only way to God? A lot of ways we could tackle this. We're going to choose only one here. Here's an outline. Here's an outline of today where we're going to go. First point will be there is only one God. There's only one God. 
Secondly, man is guilty before this God. Man stands guilty before this God. Thirdly, only Jesus provides the solution to this problem, to this guilt problem. Only Jesus provides the solution to this guilt problem. And finally, his resurrection proves he is the only way. His resurrection proves he is the only way to God. We recently studied through the book of Acts. I'm going to go there again because it's very helpful. Acts 17. I'm going to try not to make you feel like you're in Sky Zone today where you're bouncing all over the different texts. They have trampolines on the wall there. Have you seen that? We're going to try to stay mainly in Acts 17 here for our convenience. But these truths can be found throughout the scriptures. And we start here reading the story of the Apostle Paul finding himself in Athens. And one reason the story is so helpful for us is because the culture in Athens was a lot like it is today. Uh, it was very common in the city to accept that there were many gods. They had a god on every corner there. They had the Parthenon there, the temple to the god Athena, which was the god of strategic war, the goddess of strategic war. You could also worship the emperor there if you wanted to. Judaism was even present there. You could worship a lot of things very similar to our culture today. And Paul was walking into this. Uh, today we have a buffet of religion in America alone. It's very common and popular to be Muslim, Buddhist, agnostic, Hindu, atheistic, Unitarian, Wiccan, Native American, Baha'i, New Age, Taoist. There's all kinds. Take your pick, says America. And that was the notion that was alive in Paul's day. And the very presence of so many choices can make people wonder if you haven't grown up exposed to the scriptures or being around Christians at all, it is natural to wonder this. And after all, isn't finding God a, a bit like finding a destination on your GPS? Today I'm going to try to find a ball field in Wake Forest. And what I'll do is I'll type the address in my iPhone and it will give me a little blue line that tells me how to get there. But there will also be some light blue lines that come up, right? And I can actually switch and pick an alternate path. Sometimes I do it just for the fun of it. That's the way people will view religion. Isn't there, after all, many different routes that will get you there? God's a destination. There's surely there's lots of different paths. But Paul speaks into these questions in this text. Here he addresses the Areopagus. Areopagus is a group, the council of philosophers, who actually kind of ruled the thought in the city. We don't have something like this, but imagine just like a civil rulers that we have, they also had a, a thought ruling body. And if you're going to bring something new up in the city, you had to go before these dudes and talk about it. And that's what Paul is doing in verse 22 here. Let's read the text. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, right? He's putting on that point there that I just mentioned. Uh, just like today, even our entertainers are now religious. It used to be you think that these guys were kind of all religious. You've got Tom Cruise, Scientologist, right? Jerry Seinfeld, man, he used to be a guy that made fun of everything holy. Now he's going around practicing TM, Transcendental Meditation. Uh, even everybody can pick what they choose. And this is what was going on in Athens there. Verse 23, Paul said, for as I was walking along, as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. So thorough was the buffet of choices that they even had a choice for the unknown God. And Paul points to that one and says, I'm going to tell you about the God that you do not 
No. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And we come now to the first point that I would want to make here. When answering the question, is Jesus the only way to God? I think you should start here that there is only but one God. There is but one God. Paul explains this in a couple of ways here that we can know. First, in verse 24, note how he talks about the God who made the world and everything in it. The Lord of heaven and earth. This is pretty all-inclusive, right? If you made everything... Everything in it, there's not a lot of room for competition. Paul is saying there is only one who created everything, and that is the true God. We see this in Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Only one God is mentioned here. Secondly, specifically, this one God is responsible for all mankind. We see this in verse 26. From one man, every nation of mankind was made, right? That's how Paul is arguing. If, if God made this man and from this man all mankind were made, surely he is the God. So even if there are lots of cultures claiming different gods, Paul says there was only one God who started humanity and he is the one God to be worshipped. Finally, Paul says in verse 26, only this one God determined the history of all nations. You see that there in verse 26. If there were various valid gods, you would think they might be wrestling in their rule over history, right? But no, says Paul, there's only one who is determining the fate of all nations. And again, you can find this all over the Bible. We don't have time to look at it today, but you can find monotheism everywhere. It's almost assumed in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 435 Moses says it was shown to you that the Lord is God there is no other the New Testament first Timothy 2 5 there is one God over and over again the Bible assures us that there is one God now that's important for various reasons when we're taking on this argument first if there is only one God could it then be possible that there's only one way to him it's rational, right? It's not irrational to say if there's only one God, there might only be one way to him. So it's nice to establish that at the start. And secondly, if there is only one God, then everybody who has suggested that there are many, they have some explaining to do. If there's only one, everybody who suggests that there are many have to answer to him for that. There's some explaining to do. And we'll get to that later. But right here, I think we can apply this, even at the beginning, from Paul and how he engages these people. He's very respectful. Uh, he's, he's, he's caring about their systems, their structures. He goes before he's supposed to go before, and he isn't mocking them as he's telling this story. And I think in our surety, we can learn some humility. In our surety, we can learn some humility. One of the biggest evangelistic tools we have been given is our ability to show love towards those who disagree with us. Bold but sensitive, truthful yet respectful should be our watchwords as we're engaging others 
who think it's baloney to think there's only one way to Jesus. We have to have the right attitude when we're coming before them. How can we do that? Well, we can seek out relationships, actually go out of our way to form bonds with people who are radically different from us. Recently, I talked to one of the leaders in town. He leads the Islamic Association here in town. I was talking to him. I told him right up front, I'm a Christian. You know, we probably don't agree about some things, but I'd like to get to know you. And he gave me some literature, and I gave him some literature, and he invited me to one of his meetings, and it was a good conversation. We were able to say, hey, I believe this, and hey, and we respected each other, and I think it went a long way to breaking down some barriers there. That's the way that God would have us pursue humility. This Easter, we have a golden opportunity. You can bring, we've talked about this, you can bring people into your home who believe different than you if you invite a student from NC State. We've made it possible here at TCC where if you let us know, we can try to match you up with a student who believes there are many gods. They're not Christian. You can have them into your home, show them the glories of Christ through your Easter celebration, but do it with hospitality. Do it with care. Do it while engaging them in a respectful manner. Here, coming up on April 4th, we're going to send some people out into the neighborhood here to advertise um, our celebration, our Loving the City celebration. You can go meet people where they are, no matter what their background is, and invite them to this event that shows that we care about them. Lots of ways to show humility and hospitality within our surety when we say there is only one God. Let's keep reading here. Acts 17. Back to verse 26. The big chunk of text, but we can handle it. And he made, this one God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29. And this is crucial. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. We could say a lot about this text, but the point I want to make is that man stands guilty before this singular God. That's the second point. Man stands guilty before this singular God. I'm convinced that most of the lots of paths to God crowd vastly underestimate the depth of our guilt before God. And part of the reason for this is most people, when they think about moral guilt, they only have one category. The category is uh, offending others. That's the only way you can be morally uh, guilty. In other words, you may have heard this saying, what's wrong with what I did? I didn't hurt anybody, right? Uh, it's fine. As long as I'm not hurting anybody, I can do whatever I want. See that that moral category is only horizontal. It is not vertical towards God. Uh, as if harming another is the only type of moral evil that is possible. No, when the Bible speaks about our moral guilt and the offenses that we have, it is chiefly towards God. It's chiefly towards God first and foremost. We see that here in our text in verse 29. If you notice, Paul said, since God made us, we ought not to what? Since God made us, we ought not to what? Hurt other people? Not what he said. We ought not to slander, say bad things. That's not what he said. 
What he says is, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man. Did you catch it? God holds his created beings accountable for the way they think about him. That is the chief offense of mankind. They're not thinking properly about who God is. Their affections, because they're not thinking about who God is correctly, their affections miss him. They're worshiping, they're giving their heart, they're giving their soul to someone who doesn't even exist because they're not conceptualizing God correctly and they're worshiping someone else. He, as the one true living God, will not put up with bogus conceptions of who he is. It's a deficiency in our worship that is the problem of man and makes us stand guilty before this singular God. Paul mentions this elsewhere in Romans Romans chapter 1. He wrote this about man's tendency to misdirect its worship. He says in verse 22 of Romans 1. Claiming to be wise, man became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. That's the correct conception for what? Images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And the point isn't that you made something solid. The point is you created something that's not God. He's using these solid things as an example, but we could use any philosophy, any religion, any idea that is not correct. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And that is our big crime. The chief injustice is that we fail to worship God for who he is. We stand guilty The one problem with folks finding other roads to God outside of Jesus is that they inevitably involve reshaping who he is, which strips, peels away at his glory. Note what Paul says here in verse 29. He says, when people create other ways to God, it involves what? The imagination of man, right? The imagination of man. And these imaginations end up with a different God that is far less glorious. Let's take the God of Islam. I love Muslims. Love them to death. But let's take the idea, the God of Islam, Allah. Allah is not the same as our Christian God. Allah does not exist as Trinity, which strips away his beauty, his complexity. Allah is not God. The Jesus they have is not our Jesus. He's not divine in Islam. He's not God's son. He didn't die on a cross and he didn't raise a... Raised again from a tomb. He's not a mediator and he's certainly not a savior. You can see how in the imagination of man they've created something totally different. And it is for that that they stand guilty. So we see humanity stands guilty for the crime of not giving God his due credit, his adulation, for his magnificence. That's part of what Paul says when he says all have sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. Right? And this is why in verse 30, Paul calls people to repentance. If you're reading through that passage, you might think it's odd that he brings up repentance all of a sudden. He doesn't name specific sins, but he does. The sin here is making less of God, forming your own God. It's a sin of idolatry. But notice this. Even if we give an immediate halt to false worship, that will not remove the guilt of man. Right? You still stand guilty. So even if you stop it today, you stop recreating God, you've still got a problem of guilt. And we see 
uh, how to deal with this. What's going to be the solution? Well, I can tell you what the solution is not. He says what is not the solution here in the text. He says in verse 25, this is not the solution. God will not be served by human hands as if he needs anything. Every, uh, make note of that because every other religion, every other major religion that's out there tries to do just that. When we start making a misconception of God, our tendency is, how can I please Him? What can I do to make myself look better before Him? But what we find very quickly is that God, the true God, cannot be bought off. He's not like uh, when, when you have a child and they skin their knee and you run up to the child and he's wailing and you give him a lollipop. And all of a sudden, right? It, that's not the way it works. But all other religions are trying to do this. Let's come up with some work that will cure this situation. It doesn't work like that. We call that a works-based system of religion. And the thought is I can improve my guilty state by living right or giving things away or helping others. That's not the answer. None of those things can remove the guilt because the offense is against God himself. And what happens is when people are trying to work their way to God and outdo themselves, they're doing it without worshiping God. So they end up piling offense against offense against offense. So every time you're trying to help somebody work your way to God, that's offensive. And so you end up with this backlog of offenses going deeper and deeper into your guilt. And that's why every religion besides Christianity fails. A couple weeks ago, I was the last one to leave the church. Not because I work here or because I was locking up. I did so because I was locked out of my car. So here's some, that's not funny. (laughs) You're really laughing. But here's some advice from an older dude. Uh, When you buy a used car, like I recently did, Make sure you actually have the key that starts the car and the key that opens the doors. And some vehicles are different, right? So I bought a car and I didn't have the key that opens the door. Now, I'm not an idiot. I had a fob, right? So to start my car, I have a key. To unlock my car, I have a fob. But I did feel idiotic when I left the church and my fob battery went dead, right? So I lock my car and I walk out there and I'm like looking for the beep beep. And I'm like, <laughs> it didn't work. And the irony was, I had, you finally see it, I tried to count them. I have a lot of keys. I have 12 of them. This is a Whopper keychain. And so I had the thought, maybe one of these other ones will work. So I, I started trying them, right? And if you, if you know anything about how a lock works, that's right, there are springs in there and inside a circle. And only one key is going to make these springs go down so that The circle turns within the cylinder and the latch unleashes itself and you can open your door. But I was thinking I would try him. That's the problem with other religion. It's not as if Christians go around thinking up, hey, let's have the only way. The problem is only one key can solve the problem. And that's Jesus. The problem is guilt. And only one key is going to make it work. And without Jesus, you're locked out. You don't have the key. So what? Here is the solution. Only Jesus provides, point three, only Jesus provides the solution to this problem of guilt. This is truly the focal point of the entire argument here. 
Perhaps you've heard it said, uh, getting to God is like a lot of trails up a mountain, right? And you can take several different trails to get to the top of mountain. And religions are just like all the different trails that might lead there. But, but the problem with that analogy is it ignores what the Bible says. It's a Grand Canyon-like chasm on the way to the summit that blocks every trail. So every trail that tries to get up there, you just fall into the canyon, you never reach the top, except one, and that is the path made by Jesus Christ himself. The path of Christ. Jesus says in John 14, 16, he says, I am the way, I'm the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. That's Jesus. Now let's make sure we know how this works. How is Jesus the path to God. Well, Jesus is the path to God because it is He that removes our guilt and thereby decreases this separation. The chasm shrinks because of what Jesus does in His death and resurrection. He carries us down the path to God based on His own merits as accomplished in His sacrifice. Jesus, in His death, He took our punishment. So we stand guilty before God, needing punishment. Jesus says, bring it on, and He takes it Upon, ourself, upon himself. He steps in the way of the punishment that was headed for us like a freight train and he catches it. So thereby we are no longer guilty before God. He caught what was heading our way. And not only that, in his death and resurrection, Jesus, when he dies on our behalf, his goodness counts as our goodness. His moral perfection counts for us. This week, big news in hip-hop. I don't know if you follow it, but it was big news. Hip-hop mogul and legend, Suge Knight. You know who that is? Suge Knight was in court again, and he collapsed after, after the bail amount was read on his recent arrest. He was arrested, brought in on three different charges. Uh, the charges were uh, attempted murder, murder, and hit and run because of an incident that happened as they were filming a movie and Compton, and so he's brought in, and he's standing there, and he collapses when the, the, the uh, judge reads what they're setting his bail at. His bail is set at $25 million. even the rich guy. <laughs> and it was said, $25 million has to be proved it's legal money, because this guy is part of why he's in jail, because he's done some bad things. So he's in trouble. He collapses, and his lawyer comes out, and his lawyer says, hey, mafia dons have their bail set at $5 million. So he says to the judge, why can you, how can you justify Suge Knight getting a $25 million bail? And you know what the judge said? He said he's got a rap sheet a mile long. And he's a flight risk. Starts naming all of his past offenses. And it's a stack as high as the ceiling. So he says $25 million and the least amount of time you're going to get if you're convicted by the least offense is 75 years in jail. What Jesus does when he dies for us is he grants us perfect past performance so that that mile-long rap sheet we have against God, the stack of offenses to the ceiling, it's obliterated. What's counted for us is a perfect past performance before God. That's what it means to be granted the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. So he takes the punishment for us and he transferred his moral sinlessness 
to us. Amazing. And that is the only way to God. It's the only way He's given us to solve this guilt problem. In other religions, though we respect the people in them, they fall short in this key crucial area. They can't remove the guilt problem. They don't have an adequate way. They don't have an adequate way to deal with our punishment of death. And the Bible assures us there is a response to Jesus' meritorious work on the cross. We respond by faith. We respond by looking to him and saying, this is enough. Our work is not enough. I get it. That's what every member of every other religion has to do. Only you, Jesus, have provided the way. And I trust in that. We call that faith. I admit it. And I trust it. And I put my hope in it. That is faith. The Bible says we also need repentance. Not just saying, I get it now. I love you. You're the one. But it's also turning against everything else. I put my futile attempts at other gods and working my way to heaven. Put it aside. That is repentance. And this is our call. Our response. Jesus has done all of the hard work. Ours is now turning to him and just trusting it. That's the way a covenant works. The new covenant, you have one person who comes and does all the work. And the other person just says, I'll be loyal to you. And that's what God demands. And that's what we call you to today. If you've heard this for the first time, I call you to faith and trust. Consider Jesus. Repent of failing to worship Him like we ought. And turn to Him in faith. If you are already a follower of Jesus, the call is the same. Turn to Him in faith today. He has all that you need. He is sufficient for the Christian life. Repent of your old self. You're hanging on to part of it. Don't know what it is, but you're hanging on to it. And I say, turn from it and rejoice in the new life in Jesus. Finally, the last point. One might legitimately ask, this all sounds nice that Jesus provided all we need to get to God, but how do you know it works? Right? It's a good story, but how can you prove it works? Recently heard an interview, Bill Maher, uh, the political guy that comes on TV. It's a stand-up comedian type of political guy. He has interviewers on there and he interviews people. And he was talking and he said, there's basically no way to know that your way is correct. You have no evidence of this. So how do we know? How do we answer that charge? My fourth point is the resurrection of Jesus proves that this worked. Look at verse 31. Paul knows this, so he can stand in front of all these other philosophers and he can say, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, because you're guilty, there's a judgment coming. He'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance. How do you know? He's given assurance to us by what? Raising him from the dead. That is our assurance. Jesus is the man who will be the judge, separating those who knew him from those who never knew him. But how do we know it will be Christ who reigns as judge? Well, God assured all of the cosmos it would indeed be Jesus from Nazareth by raising him from the dead. It was proof that the guilt problem has been solved. Nobody else has done it this way. Imagine what it must have been like for those following Jesus. 
at that time, right? Here's a guy who goes around and he's healing people. And he's saying, I'm in God. And he takes a stroll on the water. Who does these things? He feeds 5,000 from one lunch. He's doing amazing things. And finally he says, I am the coming God. I'm the only way to God. I'm going to die and I'm going to come back to life. Imagine the drama when he actually dies. His followers are sitting there. Okay, what now? Right? Because words of a dead man indeed can be hollow. Everybody's pausing. How could God die? Oh, well, we've got to think about this. What would happen to all of those who followed him? This moment here before the resurrection was kind of like those games you see in the NCAA tournament, right? It's going on right now. Everybody, if you don't even like basketball, you're thinking about your bracket. And what we all love to see are these Cinderella stories, these underdogs, right? That's when the, the great, great, mighty, powerful team plays a no-name team, and they start off, and the no-names are actually in the game, right? And they're playing smart, they're playing fast, they're athletic, they're keeping up. And then what happens? You get to the second half, and you start thinking, oh, they'll fade away. They don't have enough depth, right? They can't play with the big dog. But then as it goes, they fail to turn it over, and they make the steal. They're playing really well. And then you get to the last two minutes. And you look around, and you say, that's going to be a shame if they don't pull this off. And it's an even game, and they're playing the last possession. They're down by one, and the guy launches a desperation three-point shot. And there's a pause, right? That last shot seems like two hours. And then it goes in. Swish. The only way they could prove the underdog had enough to make it win was to hit the final bucket. And that's what the resurrection does. Jesus makes the final shot that proved all that he said was going to come true. It's the only way you can prove it is to come back to life. The resurrection was the game-winning shot. All salvation history held its breath to see what would happen to this one who claimed that he was the only God. You see, every major religion has someone, a prophet or a teacher, who comes and says, I have a word from God. Christianity has a person who comes and says, I am God. When you look at those claims, famously, there's only three ways to respond to them. Either this guy is wrong, he's not a God at all, and if that's true, then Christianity is inferior to all religion. Or he's some kind of loony bird. Right? He's off his rocker. Megalomaniac that you know you shouldn't listen to. Or he's right. And he is far superior. And those are your choices. And the Bible testifies that he was right. He is God. Nobody else could pull this off. Have you seen the latest Acura commercial? Kind of cheesy, but in, in creating this car, what they've done in the commercials, the guy goes up to a mountain during a thunderstorm, and he's got a jar, and he catches lightning in a bottle. And you notice, as you watch that commercial, it says, don't try this at home. <laughs> That's what Jesus says to everybody else who thinks they have it right. Don't try this at home. Because the only way to overcome this guilt problem is to die and then come back to life. Nobody else can try that at home because they will fail. Only Jesus succeeds. Finally, there are a few objections. I just want to consider one or two of them here. We often hear, isn't this narrow-minded to think like this? Isn't it narrow-minded to have this viewpoint, preacher? Well, whether something's too narrow-minded or not depends on whether you're talking about desserts 
or diseases. Right? Yesterday I was at Hardee's. And they have three different types of shakes there. And you can get them each with whipped cream or not. And I took the chocolate one with whipped cream. This other dude took a strawberry. I would be a fool if I turned to him and said, Whoa, there's only one dessert possible here, man. It's chocolate with whipped cream. You don't do that with desserts because it's a personal preference. What about diseases, right? What about when your child comes down with a scarlet fever? What's the doctor going to give him? Antibiotic penicillin. Why? Because that's proved to work. You wouldn't walk out of that doctor's office and say, Ah, oh, man, this guy's not very tolerant of Benadryl. <laughs> what about Tums? Tums is being excluded here. It's not what you do when it's a serious problem and mankind has a disease. There's only one solution to it. Another way to look at the wideness of this, it's actually not narrow when you consider who the offer is to. Jesus Christ has come and he has offered himself to every ethnic group out there. The Turks can go to heaven and so can the Kurds. The Han people of China and so can the minority group, the Dai people. The Irish, the English, the African, the South African. Man, woman, adult. Child, slave, and free, all are offered life in Jesus Christ. doesn't seem so narrow to me when you think about it in that way. As we wind down here, I just want to take some time to worship. It's possible to hear one of these sermons and think, oh, now I've got some ammo when I'm talking to my friends. That's not my intent. If you've got it, then fair game. But my intent, in part, is to continue what we did in the first part of the service. Let's worship Jesus because only He provides the way. Only He's grand enough. Only His magnificence does this. Only He is worthy for this grand title of Lord and Master of all the universe. Provider of our salvation is only Jesus Christ. So I want to end today by meditating, one way that I worship sometimes is to meditate on some hymns. And so we're going to do that now. I'm going to read some words of an old hymn called Our Paschal Lamb. You know what the Paschal Lamb is in the Bible? It comes from the Old Testament story when the people of God were in Egypt and God decided everybody's guilty. Israelite, Egyptians, you're all guilty, but I'm going to provide one way of salvation. It's through death. You are to kill a Paschal lamb, a Passover lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and everyone who does that, and only that, will be saved from death. And that was to point forward to Jesus Christ, who serves as the one way of salvation. So what I'm going to ask you to do now is just to bow with me, and I will read this. After I read this, we will pray. And similar to the Lord's Supper, we want to provide for you a moment of reflection. A moment for you to worship in response to the truth of the glory of Jesus Christ. So if you'll bow with me now, we'll close with reflection on this hymn called Our Paschal Lamb. And then I'll pray. Here's the words of this song. Hail thou once despised Jesus. 
Hail thou Galilean king. Thou didst suffer to release us. Thou didst free salvation bring. Hail thou agonizing savior. Bearer of our sin and shame. By thy merits we find favor. Life is given through thy name. Paschal lamb by God appointed. All our sins on thee were laid. By almighty love anointed. Thou hast full atonement made. All thy people are forgiven through the virtue of thy blood. Opened is the gate of heaven. Peace is made twixt man and God. Jesus, hail, enthroned in glory, there forever to abide. All the heavenly hosts adore thee, seated at thy Father's side. There for sinners thou art pleading. There thou dost our place prepare, ever for us interceding, till in glory we appear. Father, what a Savior you have given us. The only way to you is through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in that today. Oh, how wide is the offer to all of us. Oh, how amazing in light of our rebellion and rejection of your glory. God, we praise you. May you teach us May you teach us humility in our surety, but may we have surety today as we go forth to worship the one true living God in Jesus Christ. Grant us hope there in a whole culture who is confused, a culture who will even condemn us for this belief. Grant us the steadfastness that will always proclaim here and throughout eternity there is only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen.